Listener supported. WNYC Studios. WQXR. In conversation. It remains an open question of what to do with the great art of problematic artists. One of the most controversial examples in classical music is the case of German composer Richard Wagner. Wagner composed some of the greatest music ever written and has influenced generations of musicians, artists, and thinkers. But he was also notoriously anti-Semitic and later the favorite composer of Adolf Hitler. Alex Ross, music critic for The New Yorker, has spent the last decade grappling with the full spectrum of Wagner's legacy. The result is his new book, Wagnerism, Art and Politics in the Shadow of Music, which explores the composer's influence beyond music. We spoke recently all about it. I'm Max Fine, a producer here at WQXR, and you're listening to Classical New York in Conversation with Alex Ross. A phrase you've used to describe your book is that it restores the magnificent confusion of what it means to be a Wagnerian. So what exactly do you mean by that? Wagner today is defined very much through his political influence on the right wing, especially on uh, Nazi Germany and on Hitler. And if there's kind of one thing that, that people know, it's that he was Hitler's favorite composer. And I wanted to write a story of Wagner's influence that did not at all shy away from that very dark and very central aspect of his legacy, but also to widen the picture and remind people that his influence was far, far broader than that. And actually, you know, in the late 19th century, he was much more often associated with the left than with the right because of his own revolutionary activities in 1848 and 49 and the revolutionary writings that followed. And also, you know, his influence on a huge variety of artistic movements, uh, French symbolism and early modernism and the, the dance of Louis Fuller and Isidore Duncan and on sort of early uh, avant-garde uh, filmmakers. It's easily forgotten now, I think, that this phenomenon, Wagnerism, Wagner's influence on the arts was as broad as it was. And, you know, in terms of social movements as well, you know, he was inspiring to feminists and early gay rights activists. He was actually inspiring to a number of Jewish Wagnerians who were well aware of his anti-Semitism, but nonetheless found something valuable in his work. And actually, there were a few African-American Wagnerians, including W.E.B. Du Bois. And so I wanted to enrich and, and complicate the picture of Wagner's influence, but, you know, at the same time, to repeat, never, never losing, losing sight of the horrendous uh, story of his influence on German anti-Semitism and this strange, posthumous, intense relationship that he had with Adolf Hitler. So I think when, when any political ideology is appropriating Wagner, it has to leave out some part of the picture. So when the left wing made Wagner a symbol, they were ignoring his more strident nationalism and they often left out the anti-Semitism, or maybe not, because people on the left were anti-Semitic themselves. And the right wing had to obscure, leave out other parts of the picture. And so to use Wagner in a very simple utilitarian political way. You have to simplify the picture. So that's the kind of process that I'm trying to show uh, as there was there was this kind of political battle over what 
Wagner's music meant uh, in Germany and elsewhere. The right wing eventually won that battle and, and Hitler seized hold of, of Wagner's work in, in what seemed a very persuasive way. And that remains persuasive today. I mean, a lot of people have concluded that that Hitler was ultimately right about Wagner and, and sort of deserves to possess this composer for all time. I, I reject that. You know, I, I don't think that we should just surrender this very complicated composer to Hitler uh, forever because there was so much in his work that that pointed in another direction. And if we surrender him to Hitler, we're erasing the experiences of all these other Wagnerians, the, the African-American Wagnerians, the Jewish Wagnerians, the feminist Wagnerians. So I think that's a, a battle that needs to keep going on. I think it's every time Wagner is performed and every time Wagner is talked about, it's another kind of contest, you know, over what he means. And there's just something at the heart of this work which just is never settled. And we can never kind of come down to a final conclusion what Wagner was really all about. And I think that's why he's still so maddeningly present, you know, so so much of a, a, a source of controversy as well as kind of uh, excited discussion and debate. Were you surprised by what you found when researching Wagner and race and could you talk a little bit more about that part of your book? Yeah, well, this is one of the most important parts of the book for me, and it was a process of, of discovery for me. I was aware all along of Du Bois and the fact that there's a chapter of his great book, The Souls of Black Folk, uh, which really revolves around this this very charged reference to Lohengrin. And I wanted to write about Du Bois, and so I started exploring looking around, were there other figures, uh, African-Americans or or Black figures, who were interested in Wagner? And in the process, I did uh, stumble across this extraordinary story of Lorana Aldridge. There were a couple of references to her, very brief references, but I was actually able to uncover a lot more of the story, uh, including a letter from Wagner's widow to Lorana Aldridge. She was the daughter of the great uh, African-American actor Ira Aldridge, who was born in New York and then went to uh, London when he was a teenager and spent the rest of his career overseas. He became very famous in Europe from the 1850s onward. Wagner probably saw him in Zurich in 1857. There's there's a reference to Ira Aldridge uh, in his correspondence. And then this extraordinary thing happens that Lorana his daughter, is hired by Cosima Wagner to sing at the Bayreuth Festival in 1896, and she was going to be one of the Valkyries. And not only that, she seemed to become quite close friends with the Wagner family, and then she fell sick, and she had major health problems throughout her life, which curtailed her career, and she did not end up singing. And the letter came afterwards, and Lorana is inquiring as to whether she might be able to come back to Bayreuth now that she's recovered. And and it's this very elegant, polite letter that Cosima writes back to her. And for me, this is a sign that, you know, Bayreuth was in a lot of ways a a quite cosmopolitan place uh, around the turn of the century, despite the growing presence of these these extreme racists and, and nationalists in the Bayreuth circle. And so, you know, the, the fact is that if you look at Du Bois and also Alan Locke, even Langston Hughes, several other black figures of the late 19th, early 20th centuries, they did not see Wagner as the enemy. They didn't necessarily see him as a, as a racist in terms of being a anti-black 
a figure, which in fact he really wasn't. You know, I mean, implicitly he was a white supremacist in terms of his racial thinking, and he was ferociously anti-Semitic, but he never really said anything about black people. And in Cosmo Wagner's diaries, you can actually see him saying some sympathetic things about uh, black Americans. And so what this group of of black intellectuals uh, concluded was that Wagner could actually serve as a model for how to take a body of myth belonging to a particular people and bring it back to life and and modernize it and incorporate it into a great uh, contemporary artwork that would be uh, inspiring uh, to members of that people. And so it was a relatively brief period and and not not a sort of very... uh, a large number of people, but but Wagner uh, did become uh, a model in that way, and I, and I just found that a, a really fascinating and unexpected strand of my story. So you talked a moment ago a little bit about different people claiming Wagner and the idea of reclaiming Wagner, and I mean his influence is still very much felt today, and his works are still regularly performed, and even just the other art that he inspired is still so influential. You also talked a few minutes ago about, like, are we far enough removed from Wagner to, like, really understand the scope and reach of his legacy, similar to, like, a Shakespeare or an Aeschylus? Well, in a strange way, Wagner does still seem very recent, and the kind of wounds of Wagner haven't healed, if you just look at the fact that um, his work is is still unofficially banned in Israel. And so there's this lingering, uh, still strong sense of injury uh, with Wagner and anger at at Wagner. Um, And that's very understandable because the anti-Semitism was so ferocious and and so intrusive. And and I do believe it it seeps into uh, the work itself um, in, in various ways. Uh, that we just can't look away from it. And so just Wagner refuses to become a kind of musty, safe figure of the past. And I think that's why actually his work remains pressing in, in a lot of ways. That's why there's such intensity when it comes to staging Wagner, for example, because there's this feeling that we have to address these issues. We, we even have to sort of bring them right on stage. And of course, you see uh, Wagner productions in Europe that, that will absolutely confront the anti-Semitism uh, head on or the, the Nazi connection, including productions at Bayreuth. And so, you know, that, that wound, uh, the, the Wagner wound has actually impelled quite creative and imaginative, sometimes rather uh, wild and chaotic uh, approach to his work that has has actually, I think, you know, enriched our sense generally of how we can take problematic figures of the past and come to terms with them, not simply by getting rid of them uh, or just coming to some very clear kind of thumbs up, thumbs down kind of judgment on them, but just this constant kind of going back and and engaging or or sort of reinventing or, or reclaiming or confronting. And, and of course, there are uh, aspects of, of Wagner that can be reclaimed, you know, against that prevailing Nazi image, whether it is the connection to uh, early gay rights uh, activists, or, or or the way in which uh, African Americans or or, or feminists uh, took inspiration from him, or you know above all that old uh, relationship with the left, uh, because uh, the Ring Cycle is a critique of 
power of, of established uh, political forces. And it is a work that, that calls for and depicts a revolution and an overturning of, of the current order. Uh, and so especially every time you come to terms with the ring, you know, you're seeing an, uh, an allegory of the crisis of capitalism. And that's absolutely what he had in mind. And it's inscribed uh, right in the text of the piece itself. The world has changed a lot in the last decade or so. What does it mean to publish this book now in 2020? Well, that's an interesting question because, you know, I I conceived the idea back in 2008. And, you know, the idea that the book would be coming out at a time when we're sort of staring at the possibility of democracy collapsing, you know, in this country and in a lot of other places around the world. And when you're seeing this, these sort of furious political divisions, and then this sort of agony that we've been living through with uh, uh, COVID-19, you know, it just, it seems like a much more stable world, you know, when I started work on the book. But the remarkable thing about Wagner is that he can always sort of turn into a mirror of whatever's happening right now. And, you know, the, the, uh, in his works, there's always this sense that they can be applied in, in a new allegory. My colleague, Tony Tomasini, um, who writes for the Times, pointed out that The Ring is the story of this bad real estate deal. And it's in particular the story of a powerful figure who is trying to get out of uh, paying his contractors. <laughs> and this might remind you a little bit of uh, President Trump's financial dealings. And so that's the the power that the works have. It is that adaptability and that mutability and that sense that the, the meaning is never fixed because, you know, Wagner was just too contradictory to begin with. And then even you know, setting aside what he may have had in mind, these works kind of put us under the spell and grip us, but we walk away with very different impressions, each of us, uh, what they are about. And, you know, that's that's what myth does, you know, these sort of mythic stories uh, of any kind and Hollywood movies and in opera and everywhere else just keep getting played out in, in new ways and new circumstances. So, so, yeah, Wagner just somehow seems all the more apt and, and sort of all the more relevant to the world we're living in now. And of course, this question where we're re-examining so many figures of the past, as well as figures of the present, powerful cultural uh, figures, and, and looking at their their more unattractive traits and trying to sort of come with a new relationship with them, or, or perhaps to reject them altogether. And this long, long controversy and, and debate over Wagner actually gives us a kind of model for for how to do that, because it just never seemed to be an option to reject Wagner altogether. He's just too much part of musical history, you know, and there's just singers who've trained all their lives to sing his roles, and you can't really learn to play a brass instrument without, you know, knowing Wagner. So he's there, he's part of history, and I believe there is so much positive, uh, uh, constructive still to be gained from his works. But at the same time, you just can't ignore this kind of swamp of problems with with Wagner and and you just sort of develop a way to to talk about that and sort of bring it to the surface and so that's what's been going on with Wagner uh, generation after generation so in a weird way this this long contest over Wagner could, could serve as a model for how we deal with other 
problematic uh, figures in our history. In the postlude, in the last chapter of your book, you also talk about your own relationship with Wagner. Can you tell me more about how your own connection to Wagner has evolved over the years? Yeah, well, I, I sort of made this unexpected decision to get quite personal at the very end of the book, which is sort of the opposite of what most people do if they're sort of taking on a big, complicated subject. They might start with the personal and kind of explain why, you know, they have this uh, particular urge to, to write about it. And I decided to leave that at the very end because, you know, I wanted to just approach the whole story in as objective a way as I could, the main part of it, and, and to sort of let all these kind of conflicting stories unfold without putting myself in the center of them. But then at the very end, I, th- I thought I'd tell my own ups and downs and kind of ambivalent relationship with Wagner as a way of just sort of using myself as an example of one more of this, this relationship, which is, you see again and again in the book of, of you know, initial enthusiasm followed by later kind of disenchantment or maybe the other way around or, or sort of this constant going back and forth and back and forth. Um, and so for me, it was actually initial resistance. I just didn't care for Wagner at all when I first heard him as a kid and I found the music kind of confusing and, and ill-defined and, and vaguely kind of made me slightly sick to my stomach. And then, you know, in college, I was kind of confronting him as this episode in, in cultural history and political history as a, as a problem, as a crisis, you know, because I studied late 19th, early 20th century European history and literature especially. And it wasn't until later that I was really seeing Wagner's works in the theater and coming to a more personal understanding of what they were about and, and sort of understanding their psychology uh, as well as these big mythic and, and political themes. And, and Wagner was a great, great psychologist. And, and it's maybe now the thing that I prize most uh, in his work. The, the sequence in Act Two of Valkyra when, when Wotan undergoes this total psychological downward spiral is just one of the most incredible things that that anyone has ever devised in opera and just the intensity of it and the kind of you know minute to minute psychological acuteness of the portrayal of this this powerful figure uh spiraling down but also kind of he's still he's consumed with self-pity and there's something kind of grandiose and narcissistic even even as he's kind of falling to pieces and it's just just an extraordinary betrayal and and so you know just with the ups and downs and and disappointments and crises of my own life i just i found those moments in in wagner those those moments of personal crisis just uh so so telling and that's what sort of remains most valuable for me today but that's just you know my my own ultimately quite personal take on it and, and just many people have other avenues into Wagner. A lot of people just won't have anything to do with him and you know I, I respect that and I'm not sort of trying to you know win more people over to the you know Wagner cause. I mean the book is is very much about this event that happened in, in cultural history rather than about the present. But but I thought it would be I thought it would be an interesting gesture to personalize the narrative right at the end as as a way of saying, well, it goes on and sort of the, the new chapters uh, of the story are being written. That was my guest, Alex Ross, music critic for The New Yorker. His new book, Wagnerism, Art and Politics in the Shadow of Music, is available now. 
This interview was produced by me, Max Fine. This is Classical New York in Conversation. Thanks for listening.